welcome to all of you. This, uh, this room is focusing on the work of Steve Pike, and he's one of the six photographers who's featured in our current Portraiture Now feature photography exhibition. And the focus of, of this show is to highlight the work of contemporary photographers who have one foot in the fine art um, gallery scene and another firmly planted in the world of editorial photography. And Steve Pike, whose work you see here, is someone that, that fits that description very well. The picture that I'll be talking about tonight uh, by Steve Pike is this photograph of Michael J. Fox. And it was shot for Esquire magazine in October of 2006 and published in the magazine's January 2008 issue. You're probably pretty familiar with Michael J. Fox's biography, but I thought I would give you just a little overview before we talk more about Steve Pike and this particular picture. Michael J. Fox was born in Canada in 1961, and he began acting at the age of 15. He appeared on a Canadian sitcom where he played a character somewhat younger than himself. This has been sort of a, a, a feature of, of Michael's career because of his small stature and youthful look from the very beginning. He was always able to play characters just a little younger than he was. He was really bitten by the acting bug. He appeared in several films that were being um, shot in Canada, did a, a variety of stage work, and dropped out of high school when he was in the 12th grade. He was a very bright student, but he simply was finding the pull of theater and film uh, much stronger than, than that of um, the schoolroom. And he then moved to Los Angeles at the age of 18 with the idea of making it uh, big in, in Hollywood. He had some guest shots, or guest spots, I should say, on a number of the popular sitcoms in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, shows like The Love Boat, uh, Trapper John, M.D., Lou Grant, and was successful in, in landing a part in what turned out to be a very short-lived uh, dramatic series that was called Palmer Town, USA. And he had hoped that that was going to be his ticket to do uh, sort of a long-running series. It only lasted seven episodes, and he found himself really almost out on the street in a very short period of time. He recalled that he really sort of lived up the money that he made when he sort of first got that, that original role, and pretty soon he was, um, he, his phone service had been cut off. He was making the rounds and trying to find um, acting jobs. He, of course, had an agent. And when the call came through that let him know that he'd actually succeeded in landing a a role on the uh, emerging of the brand new sitcom Family Ties. He took the call from a, from a phone booth outside of a fast food restaurant because his phone service had been cut off and he had let, um, he'd let people know that he would only be available for sort of between a sort of two hour period that day and that was when he sort of hung around the phone booth and waited for it to ring. He wasn't the first choice of the producer for, for Family Ties but the casting director thought he had something special and, and really persuaded the producer to give him a second, um, a second try, and it was really on that second audition that he secured that role. The, uh, the sitcom, if you don't remember it, uh, focused on a family in which the, the parents were sort of products of the, of the 1960s, early 70s, uh, very, very liberal, sort of almost sort of post-hippie, and their, uh, their son, Alex P. Keaton, was the polar opposite, um, a 
real conservative go-getter. He wasn't, uh, his character wasn't expected to be the focus of the show. The parents were seen as originally the, uh, the real, you know, the real the people that would drive the, would drive the plot lines. But after the fourth episode, he had emerged as, as the, uh, the most appealing character on the show. And from that point on, it really, um, he, he began to, you know, to really draw the attention, and that was the, the beginning of his, of his real success in television. Um, in 1985, uh, he was approached about appearing in a Steven Spielberg film that was going to be called Back to the Future, but because of his commitments with family ties, he wasn't able to, uh, you know, to take the role. And another actor was given the part of Marty McFly, but after five weeks of filming, it was determined that this actor was not right for the part, and they came back to Michael J. Fox and the Family Ties producer was willing to give him the uh, sort of a pass to, to moonlight on Back to the Future. So he worked all day on Family Ties, and then from the evening until sort of 2 o'clock in the morning, he worked on that film. Of course, it became a huge hit. It was the top uh, box office uh, grossing film in 1985, and it did then spawn two sequels um, in 1989 and in 1990. He did some other film work. Uh, Family Ties remained um, on the air from 1982 until 1989. Uh, as I say, some other film work. And then in 1992, he joined up with the, oh, I'm sorry, 1996, the, um, the popular sitcom Spin City. And it was in 1990, however, that um, he first began to exhibit uh, the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but it was not properly diagnosed, and it wasn't until a year later that it was confirmed, indeed, that he did have Parkinson's. He kept this information from um, all but a few of his uh, closest um, associates. He was concerned that people wouldn't be comfortable laughing at someone who was fighting uh, a, you know, a, a serious disease. So he kept his condition secret um, and used various medications in order to mask the symptoms. He was only 30 when, um, when he received the, the correct diagnosis, so of course a very young person. But by 1998, uh, the medication, although it was keeping his uh, the Parkinson's symptoms, uh, masking them fairly well, it was becoming increasingly difficult for him to meet his obligations uh, on Spin City, and he felt that he really needed to let the cast members and producers know of his condition. Uh, he was the announcement was greeted with great outpouring of, of sympathy and support. He continued on um, with the series until 2001. The series actually ended in 2002, but he he terminated his role in 2001. By which time he felt that it was really too difficult for him to continue. In 2000, he established the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's um, for Parkinson's disease research, and that foundation has been a major catalyst in the drive to find a, a cure for, for this disease. He was very concerned about becoming the poster child for Parkinson's disease, and he didn't want to, to simply be a, a figure of, you know, of, of, um, of sort of sympathy. He wanted to take a really proactive role, and his foundation to this point has raised $137 million dollars uh, in support of Parkinson, Parkinson's research. When I wrote the label for this picture last summer, the figure was 120 million, and it's now up to 137. He, of course, has become um, a political figure, or certainly has entered the political realm by supporting candidates who, are, um, who have favored stem cell research. The 
foundation itself does not take a political um, a, a political stance and makes a point of saying on its website that any political statements that Michael J. Fox may make with regard to um, to stem cell research, whether it's embryonic stem cell or adult stem cell research, is, does not um, reflect or is, is not connected with the foundation's activities. Um, the photograph, um, as I've said, was made for Esquire magazine by Steve Pike. Steve Pike was born um, in Leicester, England in 1957. He dropped out of high school. Well, he finished high school, but he said he left school as quickly as he could at the earliest possible point, which was at the age of 16. And he got very much involved after first working as a, um, in a textile factory and doing some motorcycle racing. Ra- racing, not wrestling, motorcycle racing. Uh, he got interested in photography and bought his first camera. His first camera was an Instamatic. He later bought um, a Roloflex, and that became his camera of choice. He was very much involved in the rock, uh, sort of punk rock music scene in the late 1970s and early 80s and played in several bands. But it was that connection to, to pop music that made him the obvious person to, to photograph the people in that industry. And so his first published works were, uh, photographs were all of, of rock um, and pop uh, punk rockers in, in Britain. The magazine that became the, uh, the conduit for his pictures in Britain was called The Face, and that was known as really the style bible in the 1980s. It started out as a, as a sort of pop music uh, fanzine, and most of the emphasis was on music, but it ultimately became one that focused on, on fashion and contemporary trends as well. He joined the staff of The New Yorker in 2004 and received, um, he was awarded um, an MBE, member of the British um, Empire, uh, from the Queen in um, in 2000 and, hmm, I'm going to forget the year, but it's this this century, so... Um, he loves doing his commercial work. Uh, he doesn't find it at all limiting, and in fact, says he really values the uh, the response that he gets from his subjects and the fact that his pictures find their way to the printed page so quickly. To be able to take an image and within um, you know matter of weeks or maybe a month or so have it appear in print, he finds um, very satisfying. He likes to work up close. Uh, he says he's usually about two feet away from his subject. He doesn't bring props to the setting uh, or to his to his um, sessions with his sitters. He enjoys talking with them. He says he really considers his photography sessions a conversation. And there's always some give and take, and he, he loves that opportunity to connect with and, and better um, become better acquainted with the people that he photographs. Of course, when you're working um, on assignment for, um, for a magazine, you go where they send you, but he doesn't seem to mind wherever those assignments take him. He photographed uh, Michael J. Fox at the headquarters for um, Fox's uh, Parkinson's Disease Foundation in, um, in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. This was taken in um, Michael J. Fox's office. The medication that he uses to control or at least um, mask his Parkinson's uh, um, symptoms has side effects, which include the sort of the swaying motion that you often see and and may think are um, is, is uh, demonstrating the or 
or reflecting his Parkinson's. In fact, it's a side effect of the medication. Without medication, his Parkinson's means that he is in sort of a constant um, steady shake and it also affects his speech. But by, uh, by a combination of drugs, he's able to control that, but the side effect is one of a sort of swaying motion. And Steve uh, Pike talked about the fact that during his session with Michael, he was shaking quite a bit, uh, but he He's trying to um, sort of moderate the amount of medication that he uses because if he, if he uses too much, that will ultimately um, shorten his life um, simply because the, um, the symptom, it, well, it won't necessarily shorten his life, but it will, be, it will become less and less effective because the body just develops a, you know, um, a tolerance for it and then it doesn't work any longer. He's grabbing the lapel of his jacket in such a way that you almost feel as though he has a, as though he's making a fist. And Steve Pike talked about the fact that that Michael really does come across as a fighter. He's determined uh, to see Parkinson's disease um, uh, cured or a cure found in the near future, and he's very confident that this will be the case. In, um, in one interview, he, he said, and I'll just sort of paraphrase, that many people have said, well, you've gotten into this to cure yourself. And he said, well, clearly he would like to find a cure, but he doesn't. Um, he sees himself very much like someone who's, who's trapped in a mine with other miners. You don't sit there wondering when you're going to get out. You're thinking about when are we all going to get out. And his commitment is to finding a cure for, for everyone. Anyway, he's very confident that that will happen. Uh, what has been remarkable about his foundation is the, um, the collaboration, the transparency that it has fostered between, um, between various uh, research entities. Rather than individuals are uh, pursuing research on this disease in, um, in you know, sort of in, in isolation, they're all talking to each other and communicating, and he's confident that as a result of this exchange of ideas and information, uh, a cure is much closer to, to being found than, uh, than if a traditional pattern of, of sort of isolated research was going forward. I wanted to show you what the, um, the magazine looked like that the picture appeared in. <laughs> Because seeing it blown up in this sort of large format, uh, this is what the cover of the magazine looked like with Johnny Depp, but this is how the um, how Steve Pike's image, and I'll, I'll just pass it around if you'd like to see it. This is part of an ongoing series of articles that Esquire does. Um, it's sort of what I've learned. Yeah, there is. If you turn it over on the back, there's another image by Steve Pike on the back. But it reproduces um, the interview in, in which he sort of talks about uh, how he's dealing with Parkinson's and how he feels now. Uh, Steve also mentioned that in the room, um, in the office, were a couple of really fabulous guitars. Uh, Michael also played guitar um, in a band when he was in high school, and some of you may remember him playing guitar, uh, Johnny B. Good in Back to the Future, and he not too long ago uh, performed in a benefit, um, so he still obviously very much loves music. If you have um, any questions, either about the photograph or, um, or yeah, Steve yeah, Pike. Maybe you mm -hmm. Probably this is one of many, many, many pictures. He always, yes, I mean, the, whenever, whenever he goes out to take pictures, he takes a series. But how many he takes depends a lot on the amount of time that the individual has to give him. Sometimes, particularly someone who is a celebrity, will say, you've got five minutes, you've got ten minutes, where you have, you know, you've had very little time at all. Yeah, but the picture that he's chosen, mm -hmm. 
this case with the magazine, mm -hmm. I mean, there is a saying of the photographer. Probably mm -hmm. there were some pictures where he smiled, some pictures maybe when he looked very different. Well, I think when you consider that, when you're doing uh, an image that's going to accompany an article, and the article is about, um, is basically what I've learned, and, it's, and the subtitle is The Fighters, this is clearly the image that helps to illustrate, best illustrate that article. The decision as to what image will run in the magazine is not usually made by the photographer. There's a picture editor at the magazine that ultimately makes the decision. And you will sometimes find a photographer, I mean, very often a photographer will say, that isn't the picture I would have picked. You know, I had, I had something I liked better from the shoot, but this is the one that the editor thought really worked best for the article. These pictures we chose um, because they were all ones that had been published, and it, it fit the theme of our exhibition, which is that, indeed, this is commercial work that's being done um, for, you know, for contemporary publications. Parkinson's disease has a particular side effect mm -hmm. that people have a very frozen mask-like mm -hmm. aspect to their face. Mm -hmm. You may not have been able to smile mm -hmm. for this photograph. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the other thing I wanted to say about the medication that... Mm -hmm. Without it, people that have tremor, mm -hmm. right. but also they get paralyzed. Eventually, mm -hmm. they cannot mm -hmm. speak. Well, he's not at that. He is not at that point yet, and in fact, um, if you, although you are not necessarily seeing Michael J. Fox on screen these days, if you have, um, if you've seen any of the Stuart Little movies, uh, there have been three of them now. He has been the voice of Stuart Little. He also uh, did the voices, did a voice in the Incredible Journey, the Disney, uh, the Disney remake. Of a, of a film from the 60s, and so he's continuing to engage with, you know, with performance, but doing, um, but basically doing voices. So um, he has been able to, you know, he's able to continue to speak. Um, but you're right. I mean, the disease has a, a whole, you know, a whole trajectory of, you know, of. Right. What you're seeing is the plate holder. It, the, he is he does not shoot digitally. He is still using um, a a traditional camera. But then the no a film. But it's being scanned and then printed. But the plate holder marks are they're they're in a way to show them. It goes back to um, to photographers like like Richard Avedon, who wanted to make sure that we understood that what we were seeing was not a cropped image, but the full frame. The idea being that you compose through you know through the lens and come up with your final image, rather than taking a picture that you then crop down to get to that point. So by being able to see the plate holder margin, you know that that's exactly what was framed in his camera, rather than an image that he edited down to get to that point. Yes? So he only shoots in black and white? Yeah. Well, he does do some color, but black and white is his preferred medium. So I did, I did encounter uh, a photograph that he had done of the, um, the president at of Brown University, which was in color. But black and white is his preferred medium. So, um, and it's, it was nice to be able to include a photographer in this exhibition who's working in black and white because color dominates so much of uh, contemporary photography, that the black and white is, is kind of a throwback to a more, a more classical or traditional approach to portraiture. So I, um, I thought that it was a nice contrast. Is this his first 
It is not his first show. It's certainly his first show in Washington. He has work that is also included in the collection of the National Portrait Gallery in London. Besides his editorial work, he has been engaged in a number of personal projects over the years and has photographed many of the world's sort of leading thinkers and philosophers. And so his, a group of his philosophers' pictures have been shown at the National Portrait Gallery in London. But this is his, um, his first show in Washington, and he's absolutely thrilled to be um, in the National Portrait Gallery for this show. Oh, he's terrific. I mean, very, very excited about being part of this show. I'm very happy to um, to comment, provide sort of anecdotal information about the different studio, um, his different studio sessions. There's actually on the New York on the New Yorker's website, you can um, you can find an uh, an audio an audio section. There's an interview conducted with Steve Pike and Martin Scholler, who is one of the other photographers represented in this exhibition, and it's. Uh, each of them talks about how they go about um, approaching photography, and it's nice to hear both of their voices. He he really, because he sees it as a conversation, he just really likes it to be very intimate. He doesn't want to be sort of pulled back and, um, and, and looking almost clinically at his subject. So he says he really likes to be in close. Now, Martin Scholler, on the other hand, talks about the fact that he's, he's always back. It's just the way that he has come to approach photography. But, but Steve, uh, I think it grows out of the, the kind of um, sort of backstage pictures that he was taking when he was doing a lot of his early music photography. I mean, he just, and he's always enjoyed having a rapport with his sitter, so I think that um, plays a lot of, plays a role in it. Yes? Is it coincidence that these are all men? Does he also shoot them? You know, <laughs> it's something that I was you know, was thinking about when I was making the selection for the show. Now, he does do women, but there weren't, the, the pictures of women that were recent were not as compelling as his pictures of men. And because the show is, is really trying, this show and the, this series of shows is trying to be as contemporary and as recent as possible, I didn't want to go back too far to find an image, um, you know, of, of a woman. But yes, he has, he has, um, there was a photograph of Nancy Pelosi, but it wasn't one that had been published. And I was trying whenever possible. There are two pictures in the installation that represent his, his personal work, uh, the Henry Kissinger and the, the Bobby Seal. Neither of those was shot on assignment. And, but other than that, everything else was something that had been published in either the New Yorker or Esquire or um, the observers of all of the different magazines that he's worked for. And I wanted to try to show a variety of, of his portraits so that you can sense that he isn't formulaic. He doesn't have one approach to portraiture that he d- uses again and again and again. And I think if you go around the room and look, if you didn't know that they were all by the same person, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, oh yes, well that's Steve Pike, that's how he makes pictures. For example, the uh, the picture that has Jeff Goldblum in it, the, this was an illustration for a theater review. And the play, which is called The Pillow Man, is a very dark, uh, was a very, had a very dark uh, storyline about the interrogation of two suspects who are believed to be responsible for some grisly child murders. And the characters on the top are the two interrogators and the, um, and the 
the two men below are those who are the, the suspects in this crime. And how do you, how do, you do a picture for uh, cast members of a, of a play like this? In this instance, you've, you know, he's, he's really made this wonderful sort of construction where you, where you really have everybody in character and the, uh, the, the suspect that Jeff Goldblum is interrogating, you can see the eye contact between them from the lower right corner up to Jeff in the, in the upper left, um, and then the other two sort of facing off against each other. The, um, the Ian McKellen was, uh, was made in Britain uh, when he was appearing in, uh, in King Lear as part of the Royal Shakespeare um, Production, which is going to be on, uh, you know, on PBS in March, with a um, with a uh, with a sort of with a controversial nude scene excised from the PBS version. Uh, this was a picture that he talked about having originally photographed in the earlier stages of this of this session. He'd photographed um, McKellen just against the, the white background, and then he turned, and suddenly you had this wonderful you know, this this black, and it just made the perfect picture. So yet yeah, the idea that a session can evolve, you can start, and then something wonderful happens. Steve says that he often will tell somebody that this is the last shot. And, and sometimes, he says, that will really elicit a wonderful reaction because the, sometimes someone will... He said in one of his pictures, the fellow, blew, the sitter blew a kiss to the camera, and it was like the best picture that he got. Um, so there are various techniques for, you know, for getting the subject to respond. 